Would you open by praying with me this morning? Father God, your son Jesus is so utterly remarkable. And the brilliance of what he is teaching here is also remarkable and life-changing and has the power to transform us and our thinking and our lives. And so I pray that you would help me to not get in the way of Jesus, but to merely open a pathway to see the things, Jesus, that you want us to see this morning. And by the power of your spirit now, would you do that? Would you open our eyes to see marvelous things from your word and from your life today, both here in this room and via live stream for all that are joining us. And as I think about that, for all that are joining us via live stream, Father, my mind goes to so many who have become sick in our church family this last week with various illnesses, not the least of which is COVID that seems to be running a bit through our county right now. And we pray not only for them, but by extension for our town and for our valley. Bring healing, but more, bring hope in the name of Jesus in whose name we pray these things. Amen. When was the last time you were thirsty? I mean, really thirsty, like tongue all dried out and sticking to the roof of your mouth kind of thirsty. I was feeling a little bit that way after not taking enough water on a six and a half mile hike yesterday. Do you remember how badly when you got to that point you wanted an ice cold drink of water or maybe an ice cold Coca-Cola? Do you remember picturing it in your mind, how good it would taste to have it flowing over your tongue and back down your throat? Thirst is among the most intense and imperative of human cravings and desires. It is half of our most basic needs, the other being food. So it is no surprise in this story that Jesus is experiencing this craving, For while fully God, he is also fully man, a man who has just spent the last six hours walking through the dry climate of ancient Palestine, and they didn't have hydro flasks back then. So now he's come to this well where about 75 feet down, nestled in the limestone walls that have been dug out, is fresh, clear, cool water. And it's not only Jesus who desires this water, so does the Samaritan woman, for it is why they are both here at this moment. Desire, craving. We experience these things at a physical level, but they are also a metaphor for the desires and cravings that are present in far deeper ways with oftentimes far greater implications and impacts. Spiritual desires, soul-deep cravings, Aches that are found deep inside and that can push us in all kinds of unhealthy directions to try and satisfy them. Desires and cravings that sometimes we don't even fully understand ourselves. In the the interaction that you just heard between Jesus and this woman, I'm sure you caught how deftly Jesus moved from a physical desire to a spiritual craving. You see, this woman awoke that day with a plan to go and get some water at midday to merely satisfy her physical needs, her daily desire to quench her thirst. But by the providence of God, she encounters the Son of God, 
and is then confronted with how far, with her far deeper spiritual and soul cravings with how those can be satisfied, not by the pursuit of immoral sexual pleasures that she is currently immersed in, but rather through worship in spirit and in truth of the one true and living God who can supply her every need and fulfill her every desire. Isn't it remarkable how a simple daily task like getting some water can lead to a life-changing transformation? And how Jesus and all of his wisdom can reveal to us in the midst of this simple and yet profound conversation, in the midst of her apparent attempt at deflecting his attention away from her situation, that Jesus can show us the true heart of worship. Come and see, she says to the men and women of the village. Come and see. Can this be the Messiah? So there is so much here in this story to learn that we're going to take the next two Sundays to dig into this story that we see in John 4. This morning, we're just going to press into especially verses 19 through 26 to remind ourselves why we gather here on Sunday mornings, namely to come and see and to worship the man named Jesus and his father by the Spirit. So, let's begin. This past Wednesday night, I approached a few people at Family Night at Grace. And by the way, if you weren't here, I'd love to invite you to that again. We had a great time, 5.15. We had a great meal of tacos and Mexican rice and snickerdoodles for dessert, and it was awesome. And we had a teaching time, a, a course seminar, and all the kids had teaching for them. And I took the opportunity to do a little survey. I walked around, and I asked people, and I want to do it for you right now. I said, okay, are I'm going to ask you a question, and I want, to, I want you to tell me the first word or phrase that comes into your mind. Tell me what that phrase is. Here's my question. Are you ready? What do you think of when you hear the word worship? Some of the responses I got that night, adoration, singing, right? Quite a few times. Maybe that was the word that popped into your mind. I got that one quite a few times. Grace Church on a Sunday morning with people with their hands raised, singing. One person said, it's all of life, a whole attitude toward God, which I think that starts to get a little bit closer to the conversation that Jesus and the woman are having, closer to what Jesus wants us to learn about worship so that we might take one step closer to him. You see, as good students of the Bible, the first thing that we need to understand as Jesus responds to this woman at the well is the meaning of the word that they are using when they say worship. It comes up 10 times from verses 19 to 24. If you could see it in the Greek, if you knew the Greek language, you would see the word proskuneo. And here's what's fascinating, I think, about that word. It doesn't mean singing. It doesn't mean praise as such or preaching. What the word means is to express, usually in a physical act, one's complete dependence on or submission to a high authority figure. We could use phrases like to prostrate yourself before or to fall down before or if you've been watching all of the stuff on the news recently with the queen, bowing before someone. That is what is bound up in this word word, a physical act 
which represents an inward conviction to give reverence or, sub, or uh, display submission. In the 64 times that I looked at this in the New Testament, it almost always had a physical expression tied to it, and it never meant singing or praising as such, which is interesting, right, because that's the main way the evangelical church uses it. When we say the word worship, as I found out on Sunday night, or on Wednesday night, most people think of singing, but that's not exactly what it means. So I wonder if we've lost something fundamental to what it means because we've lost what the Bible means when it says worship. I wonder if we've lost what it means for what we're doing here on a Sunday morning. Tim Keller tries to get closer to what this word is trying to convey with this illustration, an an illustration conveying the idea of value or worth. Here's what he says. Your grandmother gives you a set of jewelry, and you know, it looks fine, it's nice, it's old, it's pretty, and you throw it in the top drawer. But let's just say one day, for some reason, a friend of yours who is a jeweler is in your home and happens to see it. And he goes crazy. He goes berserk. He says, wait a minute. And he looks it over and assesses it and he begins to say, listen, what do you think this is? This is unbelievably valuable. Not only are these jewels precious stones that you didn't realize, but this is obviously the work of a craftsman, a craftsman who lived in the 17th century, whose works are highly prized and whose works are very rare. This thing is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Well, when you realize that, what happens to you in your relationship to this necklace that you had previously just thrown in the top drawer? Your whole attitude towards the jewelry changes, right? Your whole stance. First, you begin to admire it in a way that you never did before. All of a sudden, now it's incredibly beautiful. You note that the jeweler says, look at this stone and look at this stone, and you start to see the beauty, and now you want to take care of it, and now you're willing to pay thousands of dollars for it to be kind of shined and and taken care of and upgraded a little bit so that it looks even more beautiful than it did before. You begin to admire it. It starts to take on a value that it never did in your life. It starts to command time from you and your thoughts and your attention because now you're assigning a whole different level of worth and value begins to change your behavior toward it. You don't just throw it in the top drawer anymore. You buy a lockbox for it and lock it away. You make sure it's safe and guarded and protected. The illustration that Tim gives us shows us a very important principle. Once you understand the true nature of something, it then has the ability to perform the function it was made for in your life and experience. It has a kind of power to do that. Worship is this act of deference, an act of submission, because we have understood the nature of who God is. And understanding that, we recognize that who he is, he, he now has the ability to function in the way he is supposed to in our lives. He has that kind of power over my living. If I understand God that way, worship is this act of reorienting my life rightly to who he is, to lead me in a, living in a way that pleases and delights him and allows me to be pleased and delighted in him. I now know that he and he alone can satisfy all of my cravings, and all of my desires. So now take 
all of that kind of understanding of worship, if that's what worship is and how it's meant to function and how it's supposed to change us, take that into the discussion of Jesus and the Samaritan woman now. You see, in all the previous times that I've read this story, I've always thought, and I've heard sermons preached this way, that when she starts to bring up this issue of worship, that she's just deflecting Jesus's attention away from her life. Jesus, go and get your husband. Woman, I don't have a husband. Jesus, you're right, you don't have a husband. For you've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Does anyone else feel like I do and feel like, ouch, like, dang, Jesus, that was a really hard thing that you just said, and that must have stung. I mean, she is quite aware of her brokenness and her sin, for it has caused her the shame of being ostracized to the point that she's not going and gathering water early in the morning like every other woman would in her village out at this well that's a long way from the, di- from the city where she would be unsafe all by herself. No, she's going there at midday in the highest point of the sun when it's as hot as it can possibly be all by herself because she is very aware of who she is. And now this, this revelation that not only is she aware of that, but he is too. He's aware somehow of the most intimate details of her brokenness and her sinfulness. And he has special insight into her problems, which in her experience only happens if you're a prophet of God. So that's what she says. You must be a prophet. And then this. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship? And I've always thought, she's deflecting. Like he brings up her sin. So she's like, okay, uh, let's talk about worship. But maybe she's not deflecting. Maybe she has a dawning perception of who this man is actually standing before her and of her sin and the knowledge that something needs to be done about her sin. And maybe she's just starting to understand in a new way in this moment moment that God requires something from her, worship. But she is unsure exactly what that is. She's confused because of the conflicts between Jews and Samaritans and what they understand or don't understand about worship. And if she's going to be right with God, if she's going to have this living water, well, if she's going to get her sin dealt with, if she's going to be able to approach this God, she asks an honest question, raises the concern. Maybe she's actually genuinely asking Jesus, would you teach me what worship is? And this is what Jesus has clearly said about who God is and what he is looking for. God is spirit, and he is looking for true worshipers. And maybe right now in this moment, he is starting to see one of those born right before him, a true worshiper. So what happens next? Jesus begins to teach her. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus is helping us see how do we worship in spirit and in truth. 
He's already diagnosed the problem for her, right? In chapter 4, verse 22. You Samaritans know very little about the one that you worship. You see, he sees that her problem is a lack of knowledge. Because of ethnic strife for generations between her people and the Jews, the Samaritans had built separate places of worship. They had changed the Pentateuch. They had a limited version of the scriptures. And their worship, therefore, wasn't based on knowledge, so their worship was deficient. And even though the Jews had some things right and salvation would come through them, we know that their worship wasn't full of full knowledge either. Right? All you have to do is just go up the page a little bit and read John chapter 3 and Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus to see that being Jewish wasn't a guarantee to understanding who God was or what he was about or how to properly worship him. Nicodemus was lost too. And Jesus is showing us that the only answer to that lack of knowledge is truth. Truth about God, about who he is. Because the only way, friends, family, the only way that we can have true worship is based on what God has revealed about himself. So that what we think about God is of great importance. It is critical, it was critical for her, and it is critical for us. What is God like? What comes into your minds when you think about God? What comes into your minds as you park your car, you're walking along the road, you come in through those doors, and you come in through one of these entrances into this auditorium, and you sit here, what are you thinking about God? To be a true worshiper, what we must not be thinking about is what we would like to happen here this morning. The music, the songs, any of the other elements, that is not worshipful. What we must be thinking about is God and what He wants in our worship. And this step toward Jesus to come and see and to worship is crucially connected to the other steps that we've already talked about because how I know about God is what? How do I get to know about God? I have to read my Bible. And Jesus himself, prayer is important for us to know about God and to know truth, right? Jesus himself did this, didn't he? Didn't he talk with God for us? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So we must go to the Bible, and then we must go from the Bible into worship, in spirit. So you know the best way that you can prepare for Sunday morning worship? (laughs) Get up early and read your Bible. See about God. Fill your mind. Come into this morning with things about God in your mind, ready to worship Him. And then do that in spirit. I think that part of what Jesus is teaching us here is not... I think we jump to, that must mean the Holy Spirit. I think Jesus means our spirit. We must worship in spirit. In other words, we must be all in. Every single part of us must be engaged and committed to to worshiping God on Sunday morning. Let's go to another part of the Bible to see what this would look like. This idea of worship that Jesus is actually talking about. Isaiah chapter Six. You'll be, many of you will be familiar with this passage. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh. 
sitting upon a throne. And now he said, okay, do you see what's happening right here? He's telling us the story so we can see what Isaiah saw. So when we say, I never saw God, we, we get a little bit of a vision here secondarily from Isaiah, right? So that's why we go to the Bible. So we're doing it right now. I saw Yahweh sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe. And maybe you need to f- close, your mind, close your eyes right now and picture it, right? Because that's what the Bible does. We have to use our imaginations. So picture Yahweh sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filling a temple. And above him stands seraphim, mighty warrior angels, and each has six wings. With two, they cover their face, and with two, they cover their feet, and with two, they're flying, and they're calling to one another and saying, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold of the temple shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Hallelujah. And that is just one example of so many in the scriptures to fill our minds with the reality of who God is and how we must think about him and to fuel then true worship of him. Do you see what happened when Isaiah saw the greatness of God? Probably for the first time, he truly worshiped. He fell on his face and covered his eyes just like the seraphim and cried out, woe is me. Have you ever had an experience like that? Hallelujah. I'm grateful for you. Have you ever had an experience reading your Bible? Have you ever been in a worship service where you felt the presence of God and you had a sense and an awareness of Him? You maybe got a vision of Him and it was so overwhelming that you lifted up your hands and you felt, or you wanted to, but you, but you didn't want to, right? Because this is weird. It's weird to do this amongst a, a, a bunch of other people, right? It's weird. It would be weird to do this. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. Forgive me. Oh, thank you. Thank you, God, for what Jesus has done. Thank you. There's something about this stance that makes it different, isn't there? There's something. Have you ever prayed on your knees? Instead of just sitting in the chair, it changes things, doesn't it? It changes your attitude towards the one to whom you're praying. Listen, family, I want this to be a place where it's okay to do this on a Sunday morning. 
if you feel like you need to. It's okay to sit down in your chair and to, to put your head in your hands if you need to, if God is moving in that way. It's okay to lift up your hands and just say, hallelujah. It's okay like you did. I love that at Grace, we clap sometimes after a song, right? Like, praise Jesus, hallelujah, God did that for me, right? And that, what will move us to do that, I am convinced, I am convinced that a bunch of stoic white people can worship a little bit like a lot of ethnicities that we learn from that worship way better than we do as white people. Okay, can we just say that? Can we be that place? And when we know God, listen, okay, okay, just so I don't get any nasty emails, I know you're worshiping if you're just sitting there sometimes and, you know, you don't have a smile on your face and your arms aren't raised because I don't always do that either. I get that. But I think the more that we know God, it will draw out from and elicit from us this kind of worship because that's the word that Jesus is using. That's what he's saying it looks like. A true worshiper is, is doing something physical. Just give me a little something. You know, even if it's just like, you're like you know, you're like you're singing and you're like, I'm just going to start down here. I'm just going to, a little bit of this. Seeing God for who he truly was helped Isaiah truly worship. And isn't that what the Samaritan woman was missing? That God was not big enough? That God wasn't bigger than her problems, bigger than her situation? And Jesus' reply was that she needed to worship in truth. She needed and we need to see and meditate on the greatness of God and the holiness of God and the sovereignty of God and the rule of God, and the infinite of God, infiniteness of God, and the sheer power of God, and the grace of God, and the mercy of God, and the kindness of God, and the goodness of God, and the love of God, and the fatherhood of God, and the rescue of God, and the creative and creational control of God, so that we might experience a reverence for, an awe of, a submission to that God, so that we won't be able to do anything but bow and move to our knees before and fall on our faces prostrate before that God. And this is not a nice to have if we can muster it or a fine time now and again for it kind of option for us, family. Jesus makes it clear. John 4, 24, we must worship. Why? Because worship will free us from lesser powers that will rob us of all that he has for us in this life. It will free us. When we worship God, if we will worship God in a way that is all in, in spirit, based on who he truly is, in truth, then God will get big and our issues will get small. You see, when we don't worship in this way, our issues get big and God gets small because we spend a tremendous amount of time thinking about the problems about the people connected to the problems. And because that is where we spend our time and our energy, they appear bigger than God, right? That makes sense. Because we haven't spent our time worshiping, those things get out of proportion in our lives. But when we worship, when we understand who God is and who our Father is and who we are as His children, and we meditate on that, He starts to get as big as He should be in our lives. And our problems get smaller. 
as we come to Him as little children in all our messiness and need, last week, to this very big God, He will free us from these lesser powers and their hold on us. Why are you worried? Because you're not worshiping. Because when you worship, the reality of God's provision and wisdom and power will be far more real than any threat to you. <laughs> Listen, isn't this true? Let's think about, because worship does include singing. It's not only singing, but it includes singing. When you're singing a song sometimes, like when you're in your house and maybe you got the Bose sound-reducing earphones on your head and you're just walking around, like does anything else in the world exist in that moment? It doesn't. Like, you're just singing and like, every, like, and the kids have to holler, right? Because that's why you're wearing the noise-reducing headphones. Because you don't want to hear anything else. Worship of God has the ability to press that out in that kind of way, I believe. If we have trouble relating to this, if you, if you don't relate to this, it might be that you're currently not tasting true worship in your life. And when that happens, the rest of the things in our lives, they kind of fling out of orbit, right? Like, like when we're worshiping God this way, it allows him to be the center of our lives. And when that happens, I have found that there's like a gravitational hold that, that and things kind of stay rightly in orbit, right? And when, when that doesn't happen, it just starts, the whole system starts getting wonky and, and things start flying out of orbit. Now, you, you may be wondering at this point late in the sermon, what does all of this have to do with what we're doing on Sunday morning? And why is it that your pastors and elders believe the Sunday gathering is so critical to your life as a disciple that you should not miss it? Come and see. Come, come here, <laughs> among other places. Come here and see. The answer to that is because what we're trying to do here is point you to God. We're trying imperfectly, <laughs> but we're trying to come together at least once per week and remind each other. That's what this morning is about. It's not just me reminding you of who God is and exalting in who this God is, but it's, it's doing that for each other. It's coming to a place and we're saying to each other by the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray and the creeds that we recite, we believe in God the Father Almighty. We believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit and that He's here right now working among us, transforming our hearts, helping us grow in some small way because you spent time here this morning instead of somewhere else so that we can walk out of those doors and say to a city that desperately needs to hear it, come and see a man that will tell you all about who you are. This is a time where we realign ourselves to him when we become misaligned. It's a time where we reorient ourselves to him when we become disorient. Like life is disorienting sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> and this time is a time to reorient to God. But what must run through all of this is true worship. This will fail if it's just religion. Jesus warns us about this in Matthew 15. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. Now, this is 
absolutely fascinating because the word that Jesus uses in Matthew 15, 18 for worship, the word behind that is not our word that he's using in John 4 with the Samaritan woman. And I think that's significant. And here's why. Because the word that he uses, right, with the woman, proskuneo, this word is sebo, which actually represents the rites and ceremonies expressed to God. So what we would think of is like all this kind of stuff that we do. Okay, so let me put these two together now. What Jesus is saying is that if you don't have the kind of worship he describes in John 4, spirit and truth worship, understanding who God is, lie on your knees, prostrate before him, then you won't be able to do the kind of worship, Sebo, that he's talking about in Matthew 7, which is the singing and the rites and all the rest of it. Do you see? Are you guys with me? Okay, that's brilliant by Jesus. Is he amazing? There are two kinds of worship you need. You need this inner kind of worship, this God-knowing worship, this fall-on-your-knees worship so that you can sing worship and do all of this kind of religious stuff worship, and then it won't be vain. It'll be true, and we'll be true worshipers here on Sunday morning because when you get those two things together, when we see revival spreading across a church family and people start to raise their arms and fall on their knees, you know what we're seeing? People set free. People set free. Which is exactly how I feel some Sundays here at Grace. And maybe you do too. There are some Sundays where true worship bursts through. When I hear Dan, one of our elders, read a scripture or Pastor George pray the way that he prays for our people or Diane sing a song or Ezra jiving on that bass guitar Aaron just getting after it on those drums sometimes right like you just like dude like sometimes like there's just such joy it's why I've said sometimes that I don't want the service to I don't want this time to end I just want to stay here I just want to be here for a few hours. I just want to keep soaking and being immersed with you in this worship of this God. Like that happens. Not every single Sunday, but many Sundays or at least parts of Sundays. That's what we want, right? Like that's what we're after. We're after God in that kind of experience so that we can justifiably call, what do some churches call this time? A worship service. <laughs> And it's just kind of a goal. And that's what it is. We, we want it to be a, a worship service. C.S. Lewis, as long as you notice and have to count the steps, you are not dancing, but only learning to dance. A good shoe is a shoe you don't notice. Good reading becomes possible when you need not consciously think about your eyes or light or print or spelling. The perfect church service would be the one we were almost unaware of. Our attention would have been on God. Amen. Why don't you walk in out of there and someone says, how was church? Oh, that sermon from Pastor Matthew was great. I mean, you can say that. <laughs> but I don't want you to. Or, wow, I mean, Diane was on fire this morning. Now, if someone says, how is church this morning? Oh, my gosh, Jesus is amazing. Jesus is amazing. 
Let me tell you the story about how he talked to this woman at a well and what he said to her and what I learned about what he said about worship today. I cannot believe Jesus. Like, that's what, it, that's what I want when you walk out. How was yours today? Oh, my word, God is amazing. I love God. He's so big. He's so awesome. He's so merciful. He's so good. He's so kind. He's so forgiving. I want you to experience more of God here. All right, I'm landing the plane. I want to show you something in this text that I haven't seen before. I want you to listen carefully to how Jesus teaches her about worship because here's another thing I'd always thought that that when he's teaching about worship, right, he's like talking about this mountain or that mountain or Jerusalem. And I always thought that Jesus is talking about a shift from worship in a particular place to worship that can happen anywhere. But I think that falls short of what he's trying to get at. I I think he's trying to say something more and life-changing and worship-altering because what Jesus is focused on is his hour. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming, verse 21, but the hour is coming and is now here, verse 23. What hour? What is Jesus talking about? What is the hour of his cross, his resurrection? His ascension. Everywhere the hour is referred to by John, that is what Jesus is talking about. And what Jesus says here is that his hour, his cross, his resurrection, his ascension work is coming. In fact, because Jesus is there before the woman at the well in that moment, in his, arc, in his incarnation, the hour is now here. The kingdom is breaking in. Things are changing. Things are transforming. They're being altered. Jesus is changing worship forever. How? Consider what the Jewish system and even the Samaritan system of worship was about. There is this great and holy God. I should rightly fall on my face in front of him because part of why I do that is I understand who I am in relationship to who he is, right? That's Isaiah 6. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. It's what she understood when she's standing before Jesus. I'm broken, I'm sinful, I'm ostracized because of it. You've pointed out my sin, Jesus, all my deficiencies. What do I do? How do I get near a God when I am like I am? Isn't that what happens sometimes on Sunday morning for you in your worship? Anybody in this room who has ever tried to worship God at all and ever tried to assess his worth and fill your mind with his worth, often we feel so unworthy in comparison, don't we? Because we know who we are. And sometimes that makes us uncomfortable and want to pull back. Sometimes it makes us not even want to come to church, to the gathering on Sunday morning, because you know who you are and you know who he is. And that's painful. And sometimes what we do is wrongly project who God is to a watching world so that they don't want to come into contact with this God. And we put up barriers between them and God. And they pull back, especially sometimes because they look at us and they see our imperfections and they see that we're just a bunch of hypocrites. Who do you think you are worshiping that God? But what Jesus is telling us is that his hour changes all of that forever. In the safety of the Messiah, worship can be found. Worship team, 
speaking of, would you come up? In the safety of the Messiah, worship can be found. Worship can be experienced. Worship can set us free because we're laying down all of our sins at the foot of His cross in the name of Jesus. Look at this Samaritan. Do you think that such weighty discussions of worship and therefore of God, of who He truly is and what He requires, are non-evangelistic? And not the way to salvation? Here we see a poor woman, a broken woman, a hard character, asking questions. I think honest questions about worship and religion and what happens to her. (laughs) Jesus reveals himself to her. And she absolutely loses her mind. Do you see it in the text in John 4? Look at her joy. She runs away completely forgetting why she even came in the first place, right? She leaves her water jar. She can't wait to just get to the village and do what? Start telling everybody about, I mean, think about this for a second. She's running to the place where everybody has judged her. Everybody has ostracized her. Everybody constantly reminds her of her sin. And the first thing she thinks to do is, come and see, come and see, come and see. A man who knows everything I ever did and accepted me just the same. Come and see and welcome to Jesus. Jesus. 